Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at what is a rather sobering passage from Jesus and two warnings that he has here uh, for Christians. One to uh, te- Christian teachers and then also to Christians, disciples uh, in general. And what we'll see together as we walk through this this morning is that true faith in Jesus is the only cure for self-deception. True faith in Jesus is the only cure for self-deception. So I'll begin reading in Matthew 7, verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As I said, some pretty sobering words that we're going to be working our way through here this morning. I was born and raised in the upstate, but my mom was, grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, in the Atlanta, Georgia area. My grandfather there, I never knew him as, uh, before he became a believer in Jesus, but most of his life, uh, he didn't know the Lord. He was saved around the age of 70, slightly before uh, when I was born. It's been a handful of years now since he passed away. And so I didn't really know this version of my grandfather, but uh, I, I knew about him, and by, by the time I knew him, he was a faithful member of First Baptist Church in Atlanta, and was, 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 that's kind of the only version I knew. But through his stories and stories about him, I knew another side of him. I never saw it firsthand, thankfully, but, but, but heard about it, where he was, uh, he was born and raised. He was the son of a Georgia sharecropper. His father was an alcoholic, and so he grew up basically uh, hiding in the fields when his dad would go through these drunk, drunken rages. That was kind of his, his way to find safety was there. They had, they had nothing. He was kind of one of those, he could, they couldn't afford to uh, send him to school, and so he educated himself literally kind of like the stories you hear about Abraham Lincoln uh, by lamplight at night and going to night school. He became a stock boy at, at Riches. He kind of worked his way up and eventually became uh, an area manager for Riches department stores, which I think are maybe defunct now, but at the time that was kind of a big deal in the mid-20th century. And so he, he, he made his fortune. As part of this, he realized, being a, a good southern boy, that he needed to go to church. And so he joined a Baptist church in the area, he became a Sunday school teacher, uh, a deacon, and was really committed there. At the same time, he, unfortunately at home, was following many of the patterns of his own dad. So his dad was poor, had nothing, was an alcoholic sharecropper. My grandfather was fairly well-to-do, a self-made man, and also an alcoholic, and at some level addicted to different prescription drugs. He was abusive to my grandmother and to, uh, and to his, his kids, very angry man. It wasn't until he was 70 years old. At this time, my wife's mom had died when she was 15 in a car accident. He had uh, remarried. He remarried a crook, basically. He married a crook, and uh, she took him for everything except for his house. 
because uh, just in his negligence, he had never transferred it out of my grandmother's name. It was the only thing she was unable to get. She had transferred everything else to her former name, which she had never, she'd never taken his name. So he, he lost literally everything. And he was, he was there. He was a wreck. He was destitute. He, had, you know, he, he, he was a self. Everything he had, he had earned with his own two hands and by the sweat of his brow, and he had nothing left. And God just woke him up, and he gloriously came to Christ. But the scary thing to me about this is, in the decades before this, no one knew that he didn't know Jesus. He was like us. He walked into church, and he could dress to the nines. He, I mean, he was the guy who'd have the flower and, and, the, uh, and the handkerchief sticking out of his pocket, a tie. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, looking at the way my grandfather dressed. I mean, his, his shoes were just spit-polished. You could see your face in them. And, and just, you know, admiring how sharp he looked when he went, went to church. You know, he often wore a hat, too. That was when, you know, gentlemen wore hats uh, along with everything else. But, but the, the scary thing about his, his story is that for decades he related in the body of Christ as a Christian, but he was not a true follower of Jesus. And we come to a passage like this this morning, and it's, it's a strong warning to people like that. He's not the only person like that in the world. And I was thinking this week as, we were, as I was uh, reading this and studying this, what a strong warning this is to our congregation. And then like a ton of bricks, it hit me, what a strong warning this is to me. What a strong warning it is to any of us to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because there are two groups of people that he warns against here this morning, and the first of which is false teachers in verses 15 through 20. Now there's a two-level warning here. One is he's warning the teachers themselves, these false prophets, but there's also a warning for the church. Look out for these kind of teachers. And he says that what, they will, what will happen to them is they will be thrown into the fire. So the question for us this morning is, what in the world does a false prophet look like? And as I was thinking about this, I thought of the, little, the story of Little Red Riding Hood. Now, if you, know, uh, if you know children's stories or fairy tales at all, perhaps you've heard this, but it's a story of, of, a, of a girl who goes looking for her grandmother, the big bad wolf, eats her grandmother, and then hides in the grandmother's bed wearing the grandmother's clothes, and Little Red Riding Hood walks in the door. Now, it's funny because this was told to me as a, a cute story as a kid, but I realize as an adult it's, it's a rather, um, you know, scary, grotesque story. And so th- this, this wolf is lying there in wait. The little, the little girl, Little Red Riding Hood, walks in, and she looks, and she says, uh, my what big ears you have, grandmother. And the, the, the wolf kind of says, uh, the better to hear you with, my dear. And then she says, well, what big eyes you have, grandmother. And she says, uh, the better to see you with, my dear. And then she says, what big teeth you have, grandmother. And the wolf says, the better to eat you with, my dear. Now, uh, the story I heard as a, uh, as a kid was then the huntsman came in from the woods and killed the big bad wolf and everyone lived happily ever after. Now, the story I read on the internet this week was that the huntsman came in and, and relocated the wolf to somewhere safe where it could survive and, you know, every... <laughs> This is true, and, and, and every, everyone, everyone lived happily ever after, including the wolf somewhere in the wild. So that's fine. It's probably, you know, maybe a better sanitized version of the story. But the point is, you know, the wolf is lying there looking like something that it's not, and the first thing we see is that wolves look like sheep, or false teachers look and sound like nice people. Jesus tells us a similar story in verse 15. False prophets wear the clothing of sheep. In other words, they're really nice people. I mean, 
It's not that false teachers couldn't be the kind of people that you know, everyone would know to avoid. There are teachers like that in the world, but what he's saying is they're really bad at their job. Like good false teachers look like really nice teachers. They take extra care with their outward appearance because they know that people engage with their message and they want to draw people toward their message. And because their job is teaching, they craft their message really well. They're really good at what they do. What is a prophet's job? Well, scripturally, his job is to speak for God. In other words, he receives a message from the Lord and he says, thus says the Lord. And then he speaks and is representing the voice of God to people. Well, there were times uh, throughout Scripture where God spoke audibly through bushes, through animals, from heaven itself, or through people. But today, God speaks to us through his word. I mean, Hebrews 1 tells us that, that he's given us his word. It's his, it's his word to us. So the prophet's job is to take God's word and, and represent, teach God's word to God's people. How do we know then if someone is a false prophet or not, if they're taking God's words and representing it to God's people? Well, this isn't the only passage in Scripture that, uh, where, where we're introduced to false prophets. There are a number of places throughout the Bible this happens. And 2 Timothy 4 kind of colors in a few of the dots for us in verses 3 and 4. And what we see there, Paul tells us one characteristic of false teachers is that they tell people what they want to hear. So he says, "...the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching." But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. In other words, if, if the preachers and teachers in our lives tell us only what we already want to believe, what we already want to hear, then it's possible that they're this kind of teacher. I mean, that's not a good sign. I mean, I believe because the Bible is a message of hope that the best preaching is hope-filled preaching because it's filled with the gospel. But truth is, sometimes good preaching and teaching rubs us the wrong way. Kind of like, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard because it goes against the grain of our humanity, what we actually want. I mean, we used to say that good preaching stepped on our toes a little bit. I mean, if the preaching and teaching here or that you're consuming on your phone or radio or TV simply affirms you and simply tells you what an amazing person you are and you, you, you want to believe then that at some level... It's probably good for us to stop and imagine how nice, fluffy, and attractive this wolf looks. He's sitting there in the middle of the sheep, and he looks nice, but there's a bite to his message. There's, there's something underneath. It's, it's like the big bad wolf under the covers there. It's, he's, he's got big teeth. So they look nice, but the truth is that they are dangerous in spite of their nice appearance. Proverbs 27.6 says that faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Enemies often kiss up to us. They sometimes don't act like our enemies. But a friend is someone who will tell us the truth even when it hurts. False teachers look nice and they sound nice, but on the inside, what's happening is they're advancing their own agenda at the expense of the people that they're supposed to serve. They're advancing their own agenda at the expense of the sheep. They might be enriching themselves. There are a lot of preachers like that in the world. Or they might be advancing their agenda by growing large crowds. But either way, the point is the wolf is in it for himself. He's in it for a meal. And the language here is strong. It's not just a hungry wolf. It's a ravenous wolf. It's, it's looking, someone looking to tear his prey limb from limb. Well, then how, if they look so much like the real thing, how do we spot false teachers? 
But what he says is they can be spotted by uh, their fruit. When we were uh, living in the upstate in our backyard, we had uh, two, a couple of fruit trees. We didn't plant them. They were there growing when we moved into the yard. And one by our back deck was pretty big, obviously been around quite a long time. One of the bigger fig trees I've seen. I think we have one out, actually out here uh, on the church property as well. But on this, a couple times uh, we, we, for a season of the year, we'd have figs grow. And just across the yard on the other side of the yard, we had an apple tree. Now, I never once walked out the back door and expected to see an apple on the fig tree or a fig on the apple tree, and that never happened. If you needed an apple, you knew where to go, and if you needed a fig, you knew where to go, and and both trees had pretty good fruit. Well, Jesus gives us two illustrations here. One is that fruit only grows on fig trees, or on fruit trees. In other words, figs don't grow on thorn bushes, and grapes don't grow on thistles. Like, you don't go to a thorn bush and, and look for figs. You go to a fig tree and look for figs. So that's the first. Fruit grows on fruit trees. And the second is only good trees can bring good fruit. In other words, if it's a sick, unhealthy, diseased tree, it won't, you, you can't get good fruit from that tree. The point is that trees can't bear fruit that's against their nature. And teachers that haven't submitted themselves to Jesus the King or to the words of Jesus the King can't bear fruit that looks like the King. There are two types of fruit that we look for with false teachers, and it makes sense, right? Words and actions. Words and actions. In other words, we must be constantly measuring what we hear and what we see against the word of God itself. Not just by the words that we hear, but by the word. Like, listen with your Bible open. Like, don't simply accept what someone says. Measure everything against God's words, one reason that we believe in here in what we call expository preaching is because it's my job, our job, to expose what God has said. Not to tell you what we think about what God has said, but to say, what has God actually said? To expose God's ideas as he is recorded them. In other words, whether we do it well or not, our, our job is for, for us to be walking through the word together so that you can see I'm not simply coming up with my own ideas for a good, inspiring speech on Sunday morning. I hope at some level you're encouraged. I hope at some level you're inspired by the word. But we're drawing out of God's word what God actually says. Well, how do we evaluate the word if we don't know the word? Well, we can't be people who, 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 who exercise this kind of discernment if, if we don't know the word. We ought to be the kind of people that dig into the Word, take time to read the Word, memorize the Word, to chew on the Word, to let it soak down into our souls. This has an added benefit, not just so you can exercise discernment, but things like this. When you're afraid, you can remember Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose Word I praise, in God who trusts, I shall not be afraid. Or when you're overwhelmed, you know that feeling? When you don't know what to do, run to Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or when you're beat down and discouraged, remember Psalm 3, verse 3. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. God's word helps us in the daily struggles of life. And at the same time, it protects protects us from false ideas about God and about the universe that God has made. So the teacher's words, his message is central. We also got to be looking at the teacher's actions, don't we? So how do we tell a true teacher from a false teacher? Well, here's some ideas. True shepherds love people. 
False teachers use people. True shepherds invest in people. False teachers spend people like money, and when they're done with them, they cast them aside. True shepherds teach the truth even when it costs them. False teachers change their message based on what will help them in this moment. I mean, sometimes wolves in sheep's clothing are, are outed, like, frankly, a number of pastors have been over the past year or two through things like uh, the Me Too movement or through financial or personal abuses. But ultimately, the good news is it's not up to us because in the end, God will take care of it. These teachers will be judged. I mean, if you have an orchard, you don't have time to, for diseased trees. They, they, they got to go because, one, they take up space that a good tree could be taking, and secondly, the disease can spread to others. These kinds of trees are chopped down and disposed of. In the same way, there's no room in God's kingdom for false prophets. They will be thrown into the fire. So that brings us to the second warning where Jesus warns us about being false Christians. He focuses a little more broadly here. And he introduces us to people that they're not quite like the big bad wolf, but, but they look like true followers of Jesus, and they aren't. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what are false Christians? Well, first of all, they claim to be followers of Jesus. So Jesus' words here are disconcerting because they sound a lot like words that we would want to say. They claim to be Christians. There are times when Scripture addresses people who deny the existence of God or claim they don't know if God exists. And if you're here and you fit in, in, into that category this morning, thank you for being here. It means a lot that you take the time to worship with us. But Jesus here doesn't have that target in mind. He has a different group of people in mind. This person, he says, verse 21, addresses him as Lord. In other words, there's an outward, at least an outward relationship between this person and Jesus. It's someone like my grandfather, someone who at an outward level at least identifies with Jesus. Well, we've just learned that our fruit shows who someone is, and Jesus says that our words aren't the ultimate measure of our relationship with the Lord. So at the one hand, on the one hand, we have to weigh someone's words, but that's not enough. In Matthew 15, Jesus quotes Isaiah, and he puts it this way, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, it's a good thing to say you love Jesus, but it's not enough to say you love Jesus. Some people who call Jesus Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but what Jesus says is not everyone. That's, that's not true of everyone. So if our actions matter more than our words, people that serve faithfully will go to heaven, right? Well, Jesus kind of gets us here too because these people also do many good works. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, cast out demons, do many mighty works in your name? Mighty works is just a metaphor. These people are miracle workers. They're, they're doing miracles in the name of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't really, he doesn't dispute this claim, does he? Like he doesn't say, no, you didn't. He, he accepts it as, as if it's true. These disciples have done amazing things in the name of Jesus. They've moved beyond ordinary service to prophesying. I mean, look, these aren't just your Sunday school teachers. These are the people like healing people. I mean, they're doing amazing works. And the scary thing about this is that Jesus is picturing, he says, on that day, the day of judgment, and he says, on that day, who will say to me? He says, many. Many will say to me. Now, 
The scary thing about this is it's not just like some like weird person sitting in the back corner at church. It's not just some fringe group. Apparently, there are a number of people, it's a significant group, who count themselves or identify as Christians who on that day Jesus won't know. So at this point, i got to admit, I'm a little bit confused. Because Jesus says our words matter, but not that much. He says our actions matter, but again, not that much. So what kind of fate awaits these people? Like false teachers, they will be judged. Verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 6, verse 8, where the psalmist writes, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So on that day, there will be people standing before Jesus, pleading with him to let them into heaven, who have expectations that he will let them in, some evidence that says he should let them in, and his answer is going to be no, leave. So what gives? Well, look at the difference in the claims here, verse 22. These people say they've done amazing miracles in Jesus' name. Verse 23, what does Jesus claim about them? They've actually done a different kind of work, workers of evil or lawlessness. So they're saying, we've done good, and Jesus is saying, you have done evil. So what jumps off the page here is that there is a difference between these people's expectations and God's expectations. I mean, good words, good works, amazing miracles, from our perspective, are strong reasons that God should let us into heaven, but it seems that God's perspective is quite different. That's not enough. And the difficulty is, on that day, it won't really matter what your perspective is. It won't matter what my perspective is, because ultimately, Jesus is the one deciding who gets in and gets out. You know, in jokes, we kind of say St. Peter or St. Paul. That's not the way they work. Jesus himself is, is making this call on who gets in. So what, then, is the determining factor? These people aren't known by Jesus. Verse 23 the heart of the matter, Jesus says, I never knew you. We sometimes, you know, if we're talking to someone about the Lord, we might ask them, do you know the Lord? Well, Jesus kind of turns it the other way here, doesn't he? He says, I don't know you. They aren't known by Jesus. We'll come back here, but Jesus adds some clarity in verse 21. He also says that, that the one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of the Father. Matthew 12, verse 50, Jesus is teaching the people. And while he's teaching, his, his mother and his brothers come and they knock on the door and they say they want to see Jesus. And then Jesus says something pretty strange. He says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, those who do the will of the Father are Jesus' family. So we've got two primary characteristics here. One, the person who will enter Jesus' kingdom does the Father's will. And secondly, is known by Jesus has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What well, sounds a little bit like there's a contradiction here. There's someone that does God's will and that matters, but doing good works can't save you. So how are we to reconcile this? Well, I think James 2 uh, can help us here. So in the book of James, James is actually the brother of Jesus, the blood brother of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus, Joseph and Mary's son. And, and he's writing to a church, and this church is struggling with favoritism. Uh, in this church, you know, in our world today, I mean, you can buy, you know, nice clothes on discount. But in this day, if you had nice clothes, you were rich. If you had bad clothes, you were poor. 
what would happen is people would walk into this church, and if someone walked in and they looked nice, they'd give them a good seat right up front. Now, no one wants to sit up front, you know, back row Baptist. But in that day, that was considered a privilege, you know, to have the seat at the front. And the poor person, they kind of ignored, and they had to find their own seat. And James confronts them, and he says, you shouldn't play favorites like this. And then he asks them a question in James 2.14. He says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, can that type of faith save him? And then in verse 17, he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the question is, are we saved by what we do or are we saved by trusting in Jesus? And in verse 22, or he quotes from Genesis 22 here, and he talks about Abraham. Abraham is is called by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he tells us kind of two two things that help us understand. He says, Abraham believed God, faith, and that was counted to him as righteousness. His faith made him righteous. But he also says his faith was completed by his works. So so let's back up a little bit, and I'll, I'll try to see if we can make sense of this. So Abraham believes God. Faith is completed by his work. So what, what God is saying here is that it's our faith that, that makes us righteous in God's eyes, but it's our light that shows if we have faith in the first place. So Abraham believed God, and that's enough. That's enough. He's God's child. And, and, but how do we know that Abraham believed God? It's because it's the life that Abraham lived. So the question isn't whether we should do good works or not. Of course we should do good works. I mean, that's what Jesus says earlier in, the, in this same sermon, Matthew chapter 5. He says, do good works so that people see what? Your, 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 your father who's in heaven, that he looks good. But the question is, what are you relying on? So, of course, we should do good works. But the person who relies on his works, Jesus says, that person has no idea what it, what it looks like to have a relationship with me. Let's, let's go back to the, the plants here. You've got a root and you've got fruit. So, we've got an apple tree here, right? The fruit cannot grow apart from a root in the ground. In other words, if I take that same tree, I chop it off at the base, and I stick that tree in the ground, but there's no root, what will happen? The tree will die. Can it have fruit? No, there's going to be no fruit on it. But if that tree stays connected to the roots, the roots grow down, they kind of suck in these nutrients, and you've got photosynthesis going on, you've got leaves, you've got growth, and eventually you have what? Fruit. The root that connects us to these good works is our faith in Jesus. But what tells us if we have the root of faith? It's if can we see fruit on the end of the branch? I mean, I know what an apple tree is because I walk out and I look at the fruit of it. But if it has no root stuck in the ground, it's not going to produce any fruit. It could posture as an apple tree. It could be an artificially made apple tree. It can, it can look like something, but it's the root of faith that produces the fruit of good works. So what Jesus is teaching here is that to do the will of the Father is to trust Jesus by faith to save you. And the fruit of this is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is teaching is that there are two errors that we can make here. One is to assume that our good works can save us. You see, these people that are standing before Jesus here, what are they depending on? They're not pointing and saying, Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. God, don't look at me. Jesus died in my place. It's the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. They're not pointing at that. What are they pointing at there before Jesus? Look at my works. Look at these amazing miracles. God, I've healed people. God, I've cast out demons. I've done mighty works in your name. 
And God says, you don't understand the root. You don't understand the essence of what it looks like to have a relationship with me through faith in Jesus Christ. It's like the person who says, God, look, I was a member at so-and-so Baptist church for 40 years. God, look, I was a Sunday school teacher in that church. God, I was a deacon in that church. But on that day, God won't care if, you, if, you, if, if, if your name says deacon or Sunday school teacher or miracle worker or demon caster outer. It won't matter on that day. The only thing that matters is do you know Jesus? You can't point to anything else. You can't rely on anything else. If you rely on anything other than a relationship through faith in Christ, Jesus will look at you and say, I don't know you. Because you can't have a personal relationship with God through your good works. You can only have it through faith in Jesus. That's one mistake we can make. The other mistake that we can make is to assume that good works don't matter. They can't save you, but they can show you who your daddy is. They can show you who your family is. So in other words, it's not enough merely to make a profession. You can't pray a prayer or walk away from Jesus and say, I got my ticket to heaven. He's also warning against that. He's warning against both. He's warning against relying on your good works. And he's also warning against a life that says it has a relationship with Jesus, but shows no evidence of actually knowing Christ. He's like, if you're a fruit tree, there's got to be fruit. If you're an apple tree, I'm looking for some apples here. If you're a fig tree, where are the figs? So for us here this morning, the only thing that will save us is a personal relationship with Jesus, but a personal relationship with Jesus will produce fruit that looks like Jesus. So these people are relying on their miracles, on the amazing things that they've done. And it's possible that we have a miracle worker here. I don't know you if you do that, but it doesn't matter if you can do miracles or if you're the person with the smallest gifts of service, the thing that matters on that day is do you know Jesus? And it also doesn't matter if your profession of faith is just something you say with your lips, but your heart is far from God. If there's no fruit of a personal relationship, the Bible offers no assurance that Jesus will know you. Now look, I can, I can tell by the, the temperature in the room, and frankly, I can tell by the temperature in my own heart. These are scary words. Depart from me, I never knew you. The point here isn't to scare anyone. But the point is to ask you, have you turned from your sin and trusted Jesus and relied on nothing else? Would you trust him today? Because on that day, he's not going to ask you if you went to church. He's not going to ask you if you did amazing works in his name. Do you know me? Do you have a relationship with me through faith? And now as, as we wrap this up, I just, I just want to say this. I know so there's a group of us that are very quick to assume, oh, yeah, we're good. And I think these words are kind of like to look at us and say, do you really know what it means to have a relationship with me? I know there's another group of people here, and they're agonizing over this question all the time. <laughs> How do I know if I'm going to show up and be one of these people one of these people that, you know, thinks they're a Christian and, and they're not. And by the same token, let me just encourage you to rest not on whether you have enough faith, not on whether you are a genuine enough Christian. Your hope is Jesus' blood and his righteousness and nothing else. On that day, Jesus isn't going to say to you, 
Did you do enough? Did you act enough like Jesus? You weren't, you know, the top of the class. You looked like you were, but in your heart, you knew you weren't. He's going to say, do you know Jesus? And, and, and when you're questioning, God, do I have enough faith? Just run to Jesus over and over again. And the, and the message is the same. Jesus, you're my only hope. 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 It's not going to be your good works. It's not going to be your amazing life. It's not going to be your, your beautiful family. It's going to be nothing. It's going to be Jesus. And you're going to stand there on that day, and Jesus is all you have. And the good news for you, brother and sister, is that Jesus will be enough. God will be faithful to his word. He will not cast you out if you come to him through his son. I mean, Romans 8 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5 tells us we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So run to the Savior, run to the Savior, run to the Savior. Our temptation in those moments is to look at ourselves. Do I have enough faith? Have I done enough? Am I enough? And brothers and sisters, you're looking the exact wrong direction. The answer will never be enough. Run and say, I have nothing. It's never enough. I only have Jesus. He's the only thing that you can offer God in that moment. God, don't look at my works. Look at Jesus standing in my place. And God says he will judge you as he judges his son. And he'll say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not for your sake, but for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, would you trust him? Eternity is at stake. And if you do know Jesus, rely on him and nothing else. So let's go to God now, take a moment to respond to his word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a minute to talk with him personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. God, we prayed these words before, and we know that they're true, that the one who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God, we come before you, and we humbly, gladly say, we are not enough. Our only hope is Jesus. God, I pray for those here who don't know him, that they would turn from their sin and trust him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to have an opportunity now to respond to the word of God has uh, spoken to you in particular ways this morning. We'd love to, uh, to see if there's any way that we could pray with you or uh, encourage you. If you'd like to know more about uh, following Jesus, we'd love to talk about that. If uh, you'd like to talk about becoming a member of this church or following the Lord through baptism, we're available uh, for that as well. I'll be here at the front, but we're going to sing about Jesus, our hope. Let's stand together. We'll sing, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood.
this morning. I want to share these words. They're at the end of a very short book, the book of Jude, just one chapter. But they're great words of comfort for God's people. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Have a wonderful day.